Reasonable doubt. That's the question today. As we look at this concluding passage um, to John's presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to want to understand today that John has made a case for the deity of Jesus and for the validity or the veracity of his gospel beyond a reasonable doubt. John has begun his gospel message some 20 chapters ago, setting forth the preeminence and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over all things, over all the world, and over all people. He began in John 1, chapter 1, with the words here, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John begins in the very first verse of his gospel to lay out the deity of Jesus of Nazareth and to connect this man who walked the earth in a literal place in a literal time and identify him as the Messiah, the Christ of God, the Son of God, and the Savior to all mankind. John begins to make that case right from the get-go, and he seeks to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, reasonable doubt, I believe, is a term that most of us as Americans have come to be very familiar with over the last couple of decades, really since the O.J. Simpson trial. The idea of reasonable doubt or proof beyond a reasonable doubt is simply this, that someone prosecuting a case, prosecuting a defendant for some crime must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they are guilty of every aspect of that crime. It is not mere probability or possibility that this defendant committed this crime, but rather it is a certainty that they are the one responsible. And because they can prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, then the conviction that they hand down is justified. That is a term that we're familiar with today in our time, with the celebrity trials that go on, it seems like, year in and year out. It seems like every other year we're having a trial of the century of some entertainer or musician or sports star who has been accused of some heinous crime. And the question always put out in the press is reasonable doubt. Well, can they prove he or she did it? It doesn't matter that it's likely that they did it or that they've been convicted in a court of public opinion, but can they prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person is guilty? Can they establish the truth? Truth is what the Apostle John has sought to establish in his gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is on trial. It is on trial before the people of his time to whom he wrote originally, but it is also on trial today in our own time. We, each and every one of us, have a decision to make regarding the truth of the gospel. John will lay out a case for us all to hear, to process, to understand. We will look at evidence. We will look at testimony. We will look at identifications. And then each and every one of us will be called to make a decision individually regarding our truth and belief concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls for a decision in his book. We will call for a decision today here in this sanctuary. As we go through this information today and this testimony, I encourage you to open your heart, open your mind to whatever the Spirit of God would speak into your heart today to to process that information as we go through this study and encourage you to respond to whatever the Spirit leads you to do today. Because this is a matter that is of utmost importance. This is not some trivial matter. This is not something that really can be delayed uh, to a later time. This is a capital offense. This is a capital case because it involves life and death. Life and death of each and every one of us who hear the gospel presented and are called to make a decision regarding that gospel. We can no longer remain neutral. The Bible, God, and the Holy Spirit call us to make a decision regarding the information that we hear presented in the gospel. 
John is going to lay that out for us today. We're going to look at the conclusion to his argument. Obviously, we can't go through this entire book today, much as I would like to, but we don't have that kind of time. So we're really going to just look at his closing argument today, and we're going to see how he sums up his case regarding the gospel and what each and every one of his hearers or readers uh, should do in response to that. So the question I want you to keep in the back of your mind today, really, as we go through this study, when considering the truth of the gospel, what decision do I need to make? Am I someone who has already come to know Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior and who have already received the the power of his gospel? Am I someone who's still thinking about it, who's still deciding, who's still mulling it over? Or am I someone who has completely rejected the gospel outright? Who am I? Where do I stand today? And what do I need to do in response to what I'm going to hear today from the Apostle John? So as we look at this case for the gospel today, I've got four points here for you today. We're going to look at the information that as John presents it. And number one, we need to see in the case for the gospel that the evidence is exhaustive. If you look at verse 30 of chapter 20, the the passage reads, Now Jesus did many other signs which were not written in this book. The apostle begins his summation or his closing argument here, and he says that, All of the works that Jesus did, all of the signs that he did, are not written in this book. He did many of them. He did numbers of them. He did thousands of them. But they are not recorded here. I have not provided you an unabridged and full and exhaustive uh, list or tally of all of the things that Jesus did. He says, furthermore, I couldn't do that even if I wanted to. He says later in John chapter 21 and verse 25, he says, Now there were also many other things that Jesus did, but were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John says, I can't give a full accounting of everything that Jesus did because the books of the world could not contain them. Now, granted, that is a little bit of hyperbole that he's employing here. It's a literary device using exaggeration, and he's trying to drive home the point that the few miracles, the few dozen miracles that we have recorded in the Gospels are not even close to all of the miracles that Jesus performed while he walked this earth. That there are thousands of them, they are innumerable, but they haven't yet been recorded. But he says in verse 31, these have been written. I have recorded some for you. I have given you a sufficient number for you to make a decision regarding who Jesus is, what he came here to do, and what he accomplished for us, and what we must do in response. Now, first, let's look at this idea of a sign. We're calling the signs evidence because signs really are miracles. That's all that the apostle is referring to here. He says when Jesus did signs, he's referring to the miracles that he did. There are eight of them recorded in the book of John. There are a few dozen more recorded in the other gospels. But he's talking about these miracles. And it's interesting that the apostle employs the term sign to describe these miracles. What do we know about a sign? A sign is something that points us to somewhere else, is it not? If I leave the church today, I go out here, I get on Kellogg and I head west, I'm going to encounter a sign that says Eisenhower National Airport. And it's going to tell me that it's some miles ahead on the road. And when I get out to the exit for the airport and I come into the airport parking lot, there's going to be a sign that directs me to where to park my car. And when I leave that car, I'm going to walk into the building and there's going to be a sign at the entrance. And there's going to be a sign that directs me to the ticket booth to buy a, buy a ticket for my flight. There's going to be a sign that tells me where to check my baggage and a sign for the gate where I need to depart on my flight. All of these different signs are not destinations in and of themselves. They are simply pointing to something else along the journey. 
The Apostle John is drawing that connection here. He is saying that the miracles that Jesus has done, the supernatural acts that Jesus has done, we are not to look at the signs themselves. They are not the destination. We're not to believe in the signs, but they simply point towards something greater. They point toward the fact that these miracles are something that man cannot do. Only God can do these things. And as you look through the signs or the miracles that are recorded in John that he gives as evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ, you will see that those signs are things which say something about Jesus. Each one has a theological meaning. We don't have time to go into the meaning of each and every one of those this morning. But each of the miracles that he does has a theological meaning. It reveals something about Christ or something about our need for Christ. Most of them reveal his sovereignty. If you look through the miracles that are recorded there, I've, I've got just a few of them here. His first miracle, the miracle of water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. We saw that one. The healing of the nobleman's son. The healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. We see Jesus' sovereignty over disease and over sickness and over physical defect. He is able to turn physical substances in from one thing to another. He's able to heal sickness and disease where it exists. He's able to correct physical deformity and those types of things. We saw the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6 where he turned the, the five loaves and two fishes into baskets and baskets and baskets full of food that fed 5,000 men, it says, indicating there were probably twice that many when you include women and children, that he fed that many. We saw the healing of the blind man. In John chapter 9, we saw him raise Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. We saw his sovereignty even over death. Jesus didn't just raise someone back from, from the dead who had died and then needed resuscitation. This man had been dead for four days. He had already been entombed. When he arrived, Mary told him that it was too late. He's already in the tomb. He's dead. He's been gone four days. But Jesus says, take me to him. And they take him to the tomb and he, and he, he walks up to the tomb and he says... Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man rises out of the tomb and he comes and he walks out. Showing that Jesus' power even extends over death. And then finally we saw the miracle in this chapter, John chapter 20, of his own resurrection. Not only can Jesus restore life to those who have died and other people, but he has the ability to take up his own life and lay his own life down again. He has sovereignty even over his own life and death. These are things that only God can do. That's why we call these signs. They are signs that point to the fact that Jesus is God. John will spend 20 chapters of his gospel explaining to us that Jesus, in fact, is God. The other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mostly lay out the humanity of Jesus. They're emphasizing that he was a man, that he is like us. And they're doing that for a specific purpose. That is to reveal to us his representative headship of all mankind. They want to affirm and teach us that Jesus was, in fact, man. But John is looking at it from the other end of the spectrum. He's looking at it from the side of heaven, and he's saying that Jesus is, in fact, God. He is, in fact, man and God. And it is because he is God that he is able to do the things that he does. He is able to do these miracles. He performs these signs. He does these healings. He raises people from the dead. And he does all of the other things that God can do. And the most important one that he's going to emphasize is, is that as God, Jesus has the power to forgive sin. The greatest sickness, disease leading to death that mankind has is sin. And Jesus, as God, has the power to overcome it. He is sovereign over sin. For those of us who place our faith and trust in him as Savior, he forgives that sin and he restores our life. 
These signs, these evidences are overwhelming. They are exhaustive. They point to who Jesus is. So John lays as the groundwork for his case the evidence of the miracles that he did that no one else could do. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on, and he goes on to employ testimony. So our second point, in the case for the gospel, their testimony is extensive. There are numerous recordings of the works that Jesus did. It's interesting that in verse 30, he says that he did many other signs. Where does he do them? He says, in the presence of the disciples. In the presence of the disciples, Jesus did these works. He did these miracles so that they would see them. So that they could give testimony of what they had seen. They were eyewitnesses. Now, we need to understand how important eyewitness accounts are in Scripture. If you look all the way back even into the Old Testament, to establish the truth of a situation or circumstance, eyewitness testimony was required. All the way back in Deuteronomy 19.15, the passage reads, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. In the Mosaic Law, it was established if someone had committed a crime, it had to be established in the the mouths of two or three witnesses for it to be considered truth. One was not enough. It required at least two, possibly three, possibly more, obviously. And that's what is being conveyed here in this passage. That Jesus did these signs, these miracles in the presence of his disciples so that the truth of what he did could be established in the mouths or in the eyes of two or three or more witnesses. And scripture testifies to this fact. Jesus' disciples who wrote books of the Bible have testified to the fact that they were with him, they saw him, they lived with him, they touched him, they did, they saw the signs that he committed, the works that he did, they saw and heard the works, words that he spoke, they saw the altercations that he had with the religious leaders of the day. They were eyewitnesses of everything that Jesus taught, everything he did, and everything he committed. And they testify about that fact. Jesus echoed this same sentiment in his own words in Matthew 18. He talking about eyewitnesses and their importance. This is in the context of church discipline, but it still applies here. Jesus speaking, he says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. It was important to have multiple eyewitnesses in order to establish the truth of any situation or circumstance. That's what Jesus has done throughout his ministry so that that circumstance, that situation, the things that he did could be recorded, not only for the people of his own time, but for people later on down the line in history, namely meaning us. We have a history of the works that Jesus did. They're right here contained in this book, and they are attested to by multiple eyewitnesses. Peter is one of those, writing in his second epistle, chapter 1 and verse 16. For we did not know, or excuse me, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter testifying about the experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, how they had went up, to, went up the hill together with Jesus and that Jesus' glorified um, body was revealed to them. He was transfigured before them and they saw his glorified personality and they heard the voice from heaven naming Jesus as the Son of God. They said, we were eyewitnesses to that. We saw that. Our words are true, and these these events and and these situations and circumstances are uh, buttressed by other testimony of other disciples as well. 
John, writing in his own epistle, chapter 1 and verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We walked with him, we lived with him, we slept with him, we worked with him, we ate with him, we saw the words that he spoke, we saw the altercations he had with the Jewish leaders, we saw the miracles that he did, the signs that he performed. We saw all of these things. They were made manifest before us. They were presented to us so that we could testify about what they are. And we now testify to you through the pages of Scripture that Jesus, in fact, was the one who was responsible for these things. That he did these. We saw these with our own eyes. So the testimony of the disciples lends credence or it establishes the truth of who Jesus was and what he did. But they are not the only witnesses. Other disciples have given account as well. Other apostles have given an account as well. Paul gives an account of his interaction with Christ and the things that he did and the transformation that was brought about in, in his life on the Damascus Road. Other church leaders and fathers from history past, past testify about who Jesus is and what he has done in their lives and in their times. We today even testify about who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, granted, he's not here physically. We're not seeing him turn water into wine or heal sick people or things of that nature. But we are, in fact, seeing the results of the work that Jesus is still doing even today. In the lives of those who have come to know Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we see the transformation that has gone on. We see how people who were once dead become alive in Christ. How we see the sin forgiven and how it transforms lives and how people become new again because of the work that Jesus has done. This is why we're called to be witnesses. This is why we're called to take the message of the gospel wherever we go to proclaim this testimony, to proclaim this change that occurs when the gospel happens in the life of a person. I'm sure most of you in here who have probably met someone or know someone or perhaps even it's you who remembers what it's like when the gospel transforms you from the inside out. When the Holy Spirit breathes new life into your heart and that old stony heart is excised and torn out of your chest and you're given a heart of flesh and God writes his commandments upon your heart and you come to know Jesus Christ in faith and he transforms everything about your existence, about your life, about your relationships, your attitudes. The changes that come as a result of the gospel are innumerable. And we are a testimony to those for those of us who know Christ as Savior. And we are to testify about what we have seen and about what we have heard. And I think too often today that we are reluctant to do that. Some of us are comfortable with quoting what Jesus did in the Bible, and, and then that's great. But we need to tell people what it is that Jesus has done for us. What has he done in our lives? Why does that matter to him, her, or him? Why do they care what some guy did 2,000 years ago in a book? What has Jesus done in our lives today? We are a walking testimony to who Jesus is. In the same way that the disciples were a testimony to what Jesus had done when they walked with him, we today are a testimony for what Jesus has done in us. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Eyewitness testimony today has received a little bit of a bad rap. Uh, if you listen to the talking heads talk about eyewitness testimony, they're really beginning to diminish the value of it. Because in talking about crimes and court cases and so forth, we see often that eyewitnesses are under duress when a, when a crime is being committed. They don't usually know the people involved. Sometimes it's dark. It might be at a distance, whatever it is. And sometimes the eyes are a little bit confusing. We think we saw one thing when really we saw another. 
our mind tends to fill in some blanks even though we didn't really see something necessarily happen. And the value of that eyewitness testimony has been somewhat diminished in court cases today. But the difference is, and, and people use that to diminish the value of the eyewitness testimony in the Bible, but the difference is that these people who are testifying in the Bible, they weren't confused about what they saw. They knew who was involved. They knew Jesus. They lived with him. They walked with him. They ate with him. They knew who he was. They saw the things that he did. There was no duress involved. They weren't confused. It wasn't dark. It wasn't unclear. They saw things clearly, and they've proclaimed them to us clearly. And they've proclaimed them for a reason, so that we too can receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is available to each and every one of us today. What is the purpose for the signs? The purpose for the signs is to establish a truth or a circumstance, right? The testimony lends credence to the evidence. The evidence doesn't mean a whole lot if there's not someone there to witness it and to testify about it. So these two things work together. And John has laid the groundwork with these two baseline things in his case for the gospel of Christ. He said the evidence is exhaustive. The testimony about it is extensive. That's undeniable. That's unquestionable. It's there. Go look for yourself. But also he moves to the third leg of his argument here. In the case for the gospel, his identity is made explicit. John is going to seek to identify just who this person is that he's talking about. Who is this person who has done these signs, who has done these miracles? Who is the person these disciples and other people are talking about and writing about? Who is this person? Well, John seeks to set out to identify him by two different titles for two different groups of people. Verse 31, he says, The reason that these signs were done, the reason that these signs were written in this book, is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So that you may believe something. That's why I presented you this evidence. That's why I've given you this testimony. So that you may believe something. Now we need to understand the word believe here in the original language has a little bit different context than the one that we typically understand it to be today. It's not simply an intellectual agreement or an intellectual assent to some set of facts. Okay, you know. It, you can believe that Jesus is the Christ and still not be saved. The Bible says that even the demons believe and shudder, right? So you can believe he is who he said he is and still not be saved. The word in the original language here is referring to a trust or a faith. It says, I've given you this evidence, I've given you this testimony so that you can trust in Jesus as the Christ, so that you can have faith in Jesus as the Christ, so that you can make a full commitment to him, not an intellectual commitment, I had one of those for about 20 years, but he's talking about a heart commitment, a full body commitment, a full spiritual commitment to Christ as, or to Jesus as the Christ. So let's look at that title a little bit here. What is he referring to when he calls Jesus the Christ? Well, if you look at John 1, 40 and 41, Jesus' calling of his disciples, he says, one of the two who heard John speak, speaking of John the Baptist, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. John is identifying Jesus here as the Messiah, the long prophesied king and priest of Israel who would come to redeem, to save, to deliver the nation Israel from bondage, to deliver them to freedom and to prosperity, who would come in and conquer all of Israel's enemies, who would restore the kingdom to them, who would bring prosperity into their lives, and who would set up a kingdom that would reign forever. It was prophesied throughout the Old Testament that this person would come. This person was called the Messiah, the Christ, as it is translated. It says that this is the person who would come. Uh, Christ is an official title. It's specific to the Jewish community. It means Messiah. The Jews were the ones who were looking for the Messiah. The rest of the world, not so much. 
This was specific to the Jews. And John is proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth to the Jews, saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Or more importantly, the Messiah is Jesus. Okay, that's an important distinction there. It's not so much that Jesus is the Messiah, but rather that the Messiah, the long prophesied one, the one who God spoke of in his word, is this Jesus, is Jesus of Nazareth. He is identified by name to communicate to the Jews who he is, that he is the long-awaited one that they've been expecting all of these years. The Messiah was going to bring prosperity to their lives. The Messiah was going to bring deliverance to their lives. He was going to be their savior. And there's no better title than savior for who Jesus was and is. And John sets out to identify that that is who he is. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah. But he doesn't stop there. He also identifies him by another name. He says, I've written these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, but also so that you know that he is the Son of God. A separate title. The two do not mean the same thing. Sometimes when reading through Scripture, I think we gloss over that a little bit and think it's just two different names referring to the same thing, and it's not. While it's referring to the same person, Jesus, it's two different titles. The Son of God was a personal title. It communicated who Jesus was, where he came from, what his lineage was, what his family history was. Because in the culture of this time, to know the family that a Jew came from was the most important thing. They wanted to know who your parents were, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and they would trace it all the way back as far as they could go. And the name Son of God here indicates where Jesus came from, what family he came from, that he is a direct descendant of God. He doesn't have an earthly father. He comes from God above. He comes from heaven. And Jesus makes an attestation in this gospel to that effect, that he is the Son of God. He makes this claim for himself despite what some will tell us today that Jesus never claimed to be God. In fact, Jesus did claim to be the Son of God. And in this culture, to claim to be the Son of someone is the same as claiming to be that person because the Son of, of a Father would have all of his attributes, his character, his, his possessions, his holding, his influence, his power. The Son would possess just as much as the Father did as far as the culture was concerned. So when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he was claiming for himself to be God. And this, in fact, is what it was that drove the Jews to want to kill him. If you look at the interchange between Jesus and the Jewish leaders in John chapter 8, that's specifically what's in view here. Jesus claimed for himself to be God by calling himself the I Am. And it says from that moment on, the Jewish leaders decided to kill him. It was that blasphemy that they believed he had committed by bringing or giving this title to himself that was going to lead to his eventual crucifixion. But John identifies him here by that name. He says he, in fact, is the Son of God. Jesus testifies to that same effect in John 5, 36. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He says, my testimony is greater than John. John was sent by God too, wasn't he? But John was not a descendant of God in the sense that Jesus was. Jesus says, the works that I do, the signs that I do, the things you have seen me do, testify about who I am. And they should indicate to you that I am sent from God. I am God. No man can do the works that I do. I and I alone can do these works because I am God. Jesus is claiming for himself the title Son of God. He is claiming for himself to be the Son of God. It's one thing to make a claim. It's another thing to have that claim validated, is it not? 
Jesus has made the claim, and he's made it in other places in Scripture as well. But we also see in the Gospels the Father's validation of Jesus' claim. From a story I cited just a moment ago, if you look at Matthew 17, 5, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Father validates this claim of Jesus that he is the Son of God by calling him his Son. He says, this is my beloved Son. With him him I am well pleased. Listen to what he has to say. His identity has been validated here. Now, it's important to have your identity validated. Anyone can make claims, can they not? We can make claims about ourselves, who we are, what we do, if we're good at something or, or whatever it may be. But until that claim is validated, it doesn't really have much meaning, does it? Now, most of you know that I'm really a home builder by trade. That's what I do for a living. I just kind of do this pastoring thing bivocationally. Well, I'm a home builder, and I can stand up here and I can tell you how good a house I build, and I can tell you what a good deal I can make you on a house, and I can tell you how, how, what a nice house I build and the quality that I put into it and all of these other things. But that doesn't really mean anything if I just make that claim for myself, does it? You're going to want one of two things. Either you're going to want to see it with your own eyes, Or number two, you're going to want to hear from somebody who's bought one of my houses. You're going to want to have that claim that I make validated. And when you hear a testimony from someone who has bought one of my houses, the claims that I make then will either be proven true or be proven false. That's what's going on in this interchange here. Jesus has made the claim to be the Son of God. John has identified him as the Son of God. But the Father himself has validated that claim by naming him as Son of God. A voice from heaven has called out and named Jesus of Nazareth the Son of God. It shouldn't take much more evidence than that. The identity of Jesus Christ has now been established. John has now completed his case. He has built all of the steps here. He has laid out the evidence. He has cited the testimony. He has made the identification. He is now going to move toward us making a decision, toward his readers and his hearers making a decision. He says, I've given you the information. I've cited all the evidence. What now will you do with this? What now will you do? That's the question that I'm going to lay before you this morning as we come to our final point. What will we do with the evidence? Having Jesus been established as the Son of God, as the Christ, as God, what will we do with that now? Let's look at that final point. In the case for the gospel, my decision is essential. Verse 31, the end of 31 there. And that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote these words so that you would believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that by believing you may have life in his name. As I said in the beginning, this is a capital case. It's a matter of life and death. And John here is telling us that by belief in Christ, believing on him, believing that he is who he says he is, believing that he is God, that he is able to forgive sin, that he is able to restore life, we too can have life. We are not alive today. We are zombies, as it were. There's a show on right now called The Walking Dead. It's all about zombies. I don't know if you've seen it or heard about it. But it is a perfect description of who you and I are apart from Jesus Christ. We are the walking dead. We are spiritually dead. John says in this letter, he says that if you believe in Jesus, you will have life. And the life that he's talking about is multifaceted. And I want to go through those with you here this morning. The first aspect of that life that Jesus promises is spiritual life. 
As I said, we are walking dead people. We are spiritually dead. The Bible describes us that way. Though we are physically alive, though we have emotions and an intellect and a will and so forth and so on, we really are dead as far as God is concerned because there's no spirit life within us. Part of the life that Jesus promises through believing on him is spiritual life. Ephesians 2 talks about this very point. Uh, Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Even though we were dead, God did something to make us alive. He breathed spiritual life into us. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 3 and Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And he said what? He talked about the new birth experience. He said, you have to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit and of water, right? And Nicodemus had the questions about, well, what are you talking about? Can a man go back in the womb and be born a second time? And Jesus has to correct his thinking. He says, no, life or the new birth experience comes from the Holy Spirit. You don't know from where it comes. You don't know where it goes. It's kind of like the wind. But that life comes through the Holy Spirit and the new birth experience. That's what's going on in Ephesians chapter 2 here. While you and I were yet dead, the Holy Spirit has breathed new life into us. He has made us spiritually alive. And now that we are spiritually alive, we are able to perceive spiritual truth. And God now gives us the faith to believe in Jesus that we didn't have before. You and I as spiritually dead people can't perceive the truth of the gospel. We hear the facts of the gospel. We hear what it's talking about, but we can't perceive it spiritually because we are spiritually dead. When God regenerates us, when the Holy Spirit breathes that life into us, we now can perceive that truth. And God can give us the faith to believe. And when we believe, we become alive. When that faith comes alive, we come alive. Our spirits come alive. So we receive spiritual life, but we also receive eternal life. Another facet of the, of the life that is granted through Jesus. Now, eternal life, most of us are familiar with. That's really the promise that we talk about to most people. If you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life, right? The, the gospel in a nutshell, that's what it comes down to. For God so loved the world, God gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Have eternal life. If you place your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior, you repent of your sin, you are in fact saved and you receive as a free gift eternal life. Eternal life in a place called heaven with Jesus and with God where you will live eternally in a relationship with God. But that's not all that eternal life means. Eternal life is something that's much deeper than simply just living an extended number of years or an infinite number of years. Even though heaven is great, just dwelling there for an infinite number of years is not fully descriptive of all that eternal life is. Jesus told us that eternal life really is this. He says in John chapter 17 verse 3, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is really means knowing God and knowing the one he has sent, Jesus Christ. It's entering into a relationship with him. Understanding who he is. Understanding who you are as a sinner, as a lost person, as a broken person. And how desperately in need of his healing power through grace that you are. And God gives you the faith to believe and you, you're restored. And you are adopted into God's family. And a number of different things happen. But it all comes down to a relationship. You come to know God and God comes to know you. And that's how you will dwell eternally, in a knowing relationship with the God of the universe. Now, I can't even begin to plumb the depths of what it means to know God in relationship. But it means something far more than what you or I experience today, even as Christ followers. It's something far greater to know God on a personal and intimate level with a much deeper knowledge and understanding that we can ever possess today living here. 
That's the type of life that is promised for believing in Jesus Christ. But not only is it spiritual life and eternal life, but it's also abundant life. Jesus says in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. I didn't come just to bring them spiritual life. I didn't come just so that they could live forever. I didn't come just to bring them into relationship with the Father. I came that they may have the life and have it abundantly. In the original language, the word abundantly is communicating the idea of excess or surplus. Okay, so Jesus says that I came to bring them excess life or surplus life, that they would have overflowing life. They would have more than they ever hoped or dreamed. They would have a life that they never could have conceived of. They would have a life that that is full of things that they never even would think about. It's overflowing. It's robust. It's full. It's not this ho-hum, you know, down in the dumps, doldrum type of faith, type of existence, type of life. It's something that's great and amazing and overflowing. It's abundant. These are all of the things that Jesus has promised through his gospel. Jesus has promised that if you will turn away from your sin, if you will turn to him in faith and repentance, that he will save your life, that he will make you spiritually alive, that he will make you eternally alive, and that he will give you an abundant life that you could never have conceived of or dreamed of. All of those are promised, but what he says is, is that you have to be willing to accept the gospel. You have to be willing to render a verdict about the truth of the gospel. Now, John has spent these couple of verses here summing up his argument. He's cited the evidence, cited the testimony. He has uh, made the identification of who Christ is. Now he calls for a decision. He says, what are you going to do with this? What do you believe about this? What are you going to do? That's the question that I bring to you this morning. What is my verdict? The closing arguments have been made. The apostle has called for a decision. As hearers and readers of the word, as hearers of the gospel message, we each have been called to make a decision, to render a verdict. We are part of the jury, as it were. Only this jury is individual. One man, one vote. What will each one of us say with regard to the gospel message? Will we find in favor and place our faith and trust in Christ and receive the life? Will we we make the conviction that leads to life? Or will we continue to reject and end up with a conviction that leads to death? That's the question that has been placed before us. And that's a question that only each individual person can answer. I can't answer it for you. The other pastors here can't answer it for you. Your spouse, your parents, your sister, your brother, whoever it is, can't answer that for you. The answer is spoken to you through the Holy Spirit into your heart. The evidence has been cited. We can't give you any more evidence, can't give you any more testimony. That's all been done. Now it's left up to you to seek the Father and find His will for your life, to hear what the Spirit speaks into your life. Will you believe? Will you give the verdict in favor of the gospel that John has presented this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just stand in awe of who you are. We thank you and praise you for your holy word that you have delivered to us with the words of your gospel message. Lord, you didn't have to call out to us at all. You didn't have to speak to us. You could have just left us right where we were in our sin and depravity, but you chose not to do that. Instead, you've called out to each one of us through your holy word. You sent Jesus from heaven to take on the form of a man, to come and walk this earth, to pay the penalty for sin that we committed. In your love, you sent Jesus to die for us. In your grace, you're calling us unto yourself. 
Lord, we each have a decision to make. Some have made that decision at time past, and some have a decision yet to make today. You, Lord, are calling out. We hear your voice today. The question is, is how will we respond? Will we reach out? Reach out for life? Will we reach out and take your loving hand? Will we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus in faith? Or will we continue to be resistant, to reject? God, I just pray that as we enter our time of invitation this morning, Lord, that your spirit moves among this, these people here today. Lord, that you give them pause to consider the facts that they've been presented this morning. Lord, that you lead them to the conviction that leads to life today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, that's the question we have this morning for each and every one of you. Have you reached that affirmative conclusion? Have you come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? The opportunity is now. You can no longer delay. Once you've been presented with the gospel, it calls for a response. It demands a response. You can no longer remain neutral. Not answering at all is the same thing as saying no. The Spirit of God himself is calling out to each and every one of you this morning. In a moment, we're going to sing our invitation song. I would encourage you to come forward and share with us today what it is that God is speaking into your heart. If you do, in fact, need to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, come forward, take the hand of one of our pastors, and tell them, I need Jesus in my life. I need to be forgiven of my sin. I need to receive that abundant life that Jesus is promising. And I want to do that right here today. I want to proclaim that to these people. I want to be a walking testimony like the disciples and like others in church history of the power that Jesus has to transform lives. Maybe you've already received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to come forward for baptism this morning and be obedient to the, the command of Christ throughout the Scripture. Once confession is made, then we're called upon to, to make that visible to our people, to make a public confession through the rite of baptism. I would encourage you to come and do that this morning as well. Or perhaps you want to join our church fellowship this morning. We call on you to come forward and to share that with, it, with one of our pastors. Say that I want to come and be a part of the fellowship here at Emmanuel Baptist Church today. I know Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. I want to be baptized and I want to come and join the fellowship. So in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And I encourage you to do whatever the Lord leads you to do. Lord, we thank you for this time together this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, hear the word spoken. We thank you for the opportunity to respond. That you are a God who loves us and who has called out to us and that you are calling us to respond today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.